It's back to the future with the return of a national party policy of years gone by. So what is social investment and does it work? For that and everything else worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. Stuff Podcasts. Kia ora, welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. I'm Adam Dudding, filling in for your usual introduction-type person, Michael Wright. Today's story is from Steve Kilgallen. Steve's a Stuff national correspondent based in Auckland. Tanakwe, Steve. Hi, Adam. Now, for years, Steve has been digging around in some of the murkier areas of New Zealand's immigration system. A couple of years ago, he wrote a story that looked at the involvement of a Sikh temple in Auckland, which had sponsored a large number of immigrants to New Zealand. He's done a number of stories since then about this temple. But today's story is is looking a bit like a finale, right? Because someone's been on trial and it all revolves around something called a religious workers category. So, Steve, what is this religious workers category and, and why has it become a bit controversial? So it's, it's a visa where you can bring people like priests into New Zealand to, to work as priests. Um, and this temple had brought quite a lot in over the years. They've had three, about 340 visas over the last 15 years. And a lot of those are for, for religious workers who tend to come in for short spells, three or four months. Um, and the suggestion that several people have made to me is that it's, it's a bit of an immigration loophole that INZ are very reluctant to ask too many questions of religious organizations. Um, so we'll take an application from a priest uh, on face value, whereas if you're coming in as a IT worker or as a chef or something like that, they'll ask a lot more questions about whether you really should be here and whether, you, whether you're needed. And um, and that's how this story came about, really, that um, this loophole was exploited by several people to bring a guy into the country on a, on a fake passport. So people came in uh, and pe- some people have got in trouble. Who, who's actually in, in court and what are they up for? So the man who got charged in the end is the was the long-time manager of the Nanaksar Temple in Manurewa, a guy called Rajvinder Singh. Um, what's interesting is that the man who came in on the fake passport wasn't charged, um, and the man who Rajvinder says told him to apply for the fake passport wasn't charged either. Um, so Rajvinder has, has accepted his guilt, but he's trying for a discharge without conviction on the grounds that essentially he was he was following instructions from his spiritual leader who is taught to um, taught to believe was, was next to God. So anything he told him to do was coming directly from God. Um, and we'll see if that defense succeeds or not. Very intriguing. Okay, that's the setup. And here's Steve Kilgallen reading the story, which is entitled, Would You Kill If He Told You To? Everyone describes him as articulate, well-educated, Intelligent. He ran daycare centres, was a school trustee, led a multi-million dollar trust, then worked as a police data analyst. He turned up with 17 letters of commendation, one of them from National MP Kanwaljit Singh Bakshi. So why was Rajvinder Singh in the Manico District Court dock admitting that he lied, over and over again, to Immigration New Zealand to bring a Sikh priest into the country on a fake passport? Well, he had a unique defence. Rajvinder's argument was that he'd fallen under the spell of his spiritual leader, the 81-year-old Amar Singh, or to his followers, 
Sant Baba Amasingji. Sant roughly transliterates to saint, and Babaji is an honorific of respect. Rajvinda said Amar had controlled his every move, and when he dared to speak back, he was physically assaulted, one time with a telephone. Amar runs a wealthy worldwide network of temple trusts, including the one in Manurewa, South Auckland, which boasts net assets over $10 million, including seven rental properties, a kindergarten, and the giant Gold Dome Temple on Great South Road. From 2004 to 2018, Rajvinder was the Manurewa Temple's full-time manager. His family were all deeply involved in Amar Singh's branch of Sikhism, and he was Amar's trusted deputy here. Amar himself was rarely in New Zealand, instead shuffling between Australia and India. One of Rajvinder's jobs was to complete immigration paperwork. Between 2006 and 2021, the temple had 338 temporary and residency visas approved, and 60 declined. He once wrote to Immigration New Zealand that the temple had a very clear record with Immigration New Zealand for a long time now. Among those he applied for was a young Punjabi student, Tarsem Singh, who had volunteered daily at the temple in 2010 and 11 and wanted to return to New Zealand, but his application was denied. In 2013, Rajvinder applied for Tarsem again, only this time Tarsem had a new passport and now his name was Simranjit Singh and his father was one Amar Singh. He was granted a four-month sponsored religious worker visa to be an assistant priest at the temple. Rajvinder knew Simranjit was Tarsem, but he said, what Babaji does is always the right thing. That's how we understood it. Looking back at it, I have a lot of questions. And he knew the truth each of the seven times he applied for visas on Tarsem's behalf, culminating in the man gaining residency in 2017. Then, immigration executed a search warrant at Tarsem's Manurewa home in December 2020 and seized the passport. Tarsem told his story to staff, and the whole jig was up. Rajvinder had left the temple by then, back in 2018, along with two of the temple trustees, Gurpreet Singh Gill and Tarsem Singh, a different Tarsem Singh, all uncomfortable with the chairman's management style. In the witness box, the trustee Tarsem Singh said he'd witnessed the telephone attack, but done nothing about it. Baba was like a god for us at that time. We trust him a lot, he said. We didn't have our own opinions and our own decisions. He still attended the temple. Gill said he too had witnessed assaults on Rajvinder, but because we were so scared and we respect him so much, we didn't say anything and we were under pressure. Gill too still attended the same temple. The lawyer for Immigration New Zealand, Tim Gray, aimed for incredulity. He said, I suggest to you, it's not plausible that a man in his 80s, in control of a large religious organisation, was in charge of everyone employed at a temple in Manurewa. Gill demurred. They teach us to follow orders. Whatever he said, we did. At this, Judge Suana Muala interjected. Would that extend even to killing someone? Under pressure, you can do anything, Gill said. So who was this all-powerful leader? 
Amar Singh's own legend says that he was orphaned at eight months old back in 1941 and at the age of 12 began studying under a Sikh leader called Ishur Singh. Sikhism has no universally recognised hierarchy, which means temples are formed and act individually and identify their own spiritual leaders. One branch emerged in Nanaksar, near the Punjabi city of Ludhiana, under Nand Singh and his successor Isha, whose followers consider them to be the 11th and 12th gurus of Sikhism. Isha mentored young Amar and trained him to be a religious singer, a prestigious role in a temple. As a result, some of Amar's followers consider him the 13th guru and have appended the name Sant, roughly comparable to saint in Christian traditions. Amar once told a court in Canada that he didn't wish to be called Sant, but wouldn't stop his followers from using the title, and indeed used it on official temple literature. Amar Singh was before that court over the title to land owned by a follower of his named Surinder Sharma. The court ruled that she'd left the land to Amar, believing that if she did, he would cure her cancer and build a temple on the land. Instead, she died and he put it up for sale. Overturning the gift in favour of her family, the Supreme Court in British Columbia found she had been in the thrall of Amar Singh. The judgment said Amar's followers saw him as someone specially gifted to intercede with God on behalf of the faithful. Now 81, Singh has control of 13 temples worldwide, with one each in the US, Canada, New Zealand and Australia, two in England and seven in India. The New Zealand temple opened in March 2005, though its parent trust dates back to 1989, with Amar Singh its founding trustee. Its latest accounts show net assets of $10 million, while the related educational trust has net assets of $1.6 million. The trust owes about $4.7 million to related temples in the UK, Canada and the US, and in turn is owed about $900,000 by the US and India. Related by the fact the chairperson is the common influential figure, say the accounts. They also show a generous faithful who donated some $325,000 last year. At the helm of this empire was, Rajvinder described it, a chairman who never wrote or emailed, instead daily dispatching verbal instructions via emissaries, and he kept those branch offices siloed, only able to correspond through him. Rajvinder tried to convey what that meant. It's hard for me to explain, he said. It's like fitting a circle into a square. The way religious organisations work is very different. One has to understand the spiritual leader has absolute power. He is considered a living God to us. Imagine starting your day bowing down to him and touching his feet. By bowing down to him it means we are submitting to him entirely. I was made to take an oath on my children's life that I would take every instruction. That is the kind of psychological pressure I was under. He said Amar was on a religious pedestal where he can do anything. Messages to Amar Singh, the Nanaksar Trust, and the former Temple Trust Chair and current trustee, Ranbir Singh Sandhu, were not returned before deadline. Mark Vrankovic, the director of Cult Watch, says Radvinja's defence was entirely feasible. That this sort of controlling pressure would have a powerful influence on the actions of a cult member, and could even push them to break a country's law, is quite credible, he says. 
and there are examples from all around the world of this sort of control resulting in law-breaking. But he adds, this needs to be balanced with personal responsibility. People should not underestimate the extreme relentless pressure some cult leaders and their lieutenants can bring on a cult member. It can be incredibly intense. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Immigration lawyer Alistair McClymont has considered Rajvinder a friend for 20 years, and he subscribed to the view that Rajvinder had been an almost innocent dupe based on his experience of completing immigration paperwork with him. Any discussion with Raj would end with him saying he had to talk to the trustee to see what he wants to do, says McClymont. It was almost as if the leader had some sort of divine wisdom which trumped everything else. It seemed a little bit mad. McClymont said Rajvinder was devastated by the fallout from his crime. He thought he'd been made a scapegoat by immigration, who knew the real offender was Amar. But he also knew his friend had made a stupid, and he said, deeply uncharacteristic mistake. But Iqbal Singh, a former devotee who ran the temple's social media before leaving, disillusioned, for Australia, reckons that while Amar did have huge power and influence, Rajvinder was understating his own pull, organising events, hiring staff, dealing with officialdom, running the temple's childcare centre. Iqbal was on the opposite end of the murder-by-faith hypothetical. If Baba Amar Singh gave him a gun and asked him to kill someone, I bet he wouldn't, he said. I can 100% guarantee that Baba Amar Singh has the final say in most of the things he's aware of, but not everything. Rajvinder, on his own authority, has done many things alone. Iqbal said Amar should be banned from New Zealand, the temple finances investigated, their immigration record examined, and Immigration New Zealand should learn their lesson and tighten the religious worker category. McClymont agreed that the religious visa category was weak, a loophole to be exploited. And he thinks Immigration New Zealand are reluctant to question religious organisations and so take their applications on face value. Last year, Stuff spoke to six visa applicants the temple had sponsored. All alleged senior temple officials had broken immigration law and had persuaded them to sign blank sheets of paper before coming to New Zealand, with agreements, including debts, added later without their knowledge. The migrants said they had paid premiums for the visas with the promise of residency, which did not eventuate, and two said they'd faced a civil case in the Indian courts for alleged debts to the temple which they denied running up. In court, Rajvinder admitted, I must have signed more than 400 sponsorship forms, no questions asked. I didn't even know who these people were. 
One of those 400, Tarsem Singh, remains in limbo. He's been given permission to work and has a job as a line mechanic at Kiwi Rail, but Immigration New Zealand have served him with a deportation liability notice. He fears the unreliable Punjabi bureaucracy means he won't be able to obtain a passport in his real name, and he hasn't seen his wife since a visit home in October 2019, and has had no luck securing her a visitor visa. Tarsem is also still pursuing an Employment Relations Authority case against the temple, alleging they exploited him and made him work for free as a handyman. Charges the temple denies. The investigation hearing into that continues next month. Immigration New Zealand wouldn't answer specific questions about Tarsem's situation, nor why they had never charged Amar Singh with any offending. Instead, in a statement attributed to Associate Deputy Secretary Katrina Robinson, Immigration New Zealand said it confirms there is no current criminal investigation into Tarsem slash Simranjit Singh and that he is currently able to remain and work in New Zealand. At this point in time, we are unable to comment further about his case as it is ongoing. Tarsem was still wary of the man who got him into this mess. I believed he had special powers, he said of Amar. I know the truth now. Tarsem's friend and advisor, Harpreet Singh, says he fears for Tarsem's safety if he's deported back to India because of Amar Singh's political influence. If he goes to India, I definitely know he'll get into trouble because he's put his story in front of the public, he says. The ultimate cult leader, Jim Jones, who led 909 of his Jonestown followers to their death in Guyana in 1978 by ordering them to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, earned a mention in the closing address by Rajvinder's lawyer, Lester Cordwell. Considering what blind faith over the centuries is responsible for, it is not hard to accept, in my submission, that someone of Mr. Singh's intelligence would be blinded by someone who is effectively a godlike figure a self-proclaimed godlike figure, declared Cordwell. He wouldn't be the first intelligent person to follow orders blindly, to have been part of a cult, effectively. Cordwell reckoned if Amar was in New Zealand, he'd be the primary defendant. He wanted a discharge without conviction for Rajvinder, because otherwise, Cordwell said, the mana which he has spent so long cultivating would be diminished overnight. The prosecutor, Tim Gray, wanted deterrence and denunciation in the sentencing. He said Rajvinder could simply have walked away much earlier and the buck has to stop somewhere. The shame and stigma of conviction was, he said, the normal consequence of committing a crime. Rajvinder had admitted his guilt at the earliest opportunity, but he was pursuing a discharge in the hope it would save his job with police his financial advisor's registration, and, most importantly, his standing in the Sikh community. Judge Mawala asked if he was minimising his role. No, said Rajvinder. He took full responsibility, but was trying to explain the circumstances. Now I've come out of that and worked in professional places. I can understand that it is not the way to work. Deferring her decision, she said she struggled to see how someone so intelligent had simply been following orders. Rajvinder was due to learn his fate on Friday morning. Instead, sentencing was deferred again until March 31st, 
when he will discover whether his unique argument persuaded Judge Moala and he can pick up the pieces of his life and his reputation. That was Steve Kilgallen reading his story, Would You Kill If He Told You To?, on the long read from Stuff. This episode was produced by Jen Black and edited by Connor Scott. If you listened via our website, by the way, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz support.